0: I'm Emily Kyle and this is LOCAL. This is a conversation with photographer Sarah Rhodes. Sarah and I met through a past local guest, Dave Carswell. Sarah has become such an inspiring force for myself and most she comes in contact with. I'm grateful to call her my friend. Always, always we start at the beginning of you where were you born
1: I was born in Sydney but my parents were living on a farm at Walker which is in um, the New England in New South Wales mm. and I lived there for the first 5 years of my life on a farm it was pretty remote uh, my parents had moved to Walker from New Zealand my dad came to Australia first as a jackaroo and then sort of found a farm to go in partnership with, with someone who he did the work and the guy had the money and they kind of did it like that. And um, then my mum came later and they, yeah,
0: they uh, had me. So they met in New Zealand or...?
1: They knew each other for four years in New Zealand and then came out on the boat for their honeymoon wow. in 1969. And mum was seasick the whole way.
0: <laughs> oh, no. So you you're born and raised on this lovely farm. I imagine there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah, a lot of freedom. Um,
1: I used to go with my dad around the farm and I'd run alongside the ute with him in my gumboots and didn't tell them that my feet were too big for the gumboots and, <laughs> you know, all those little things. But um, Yeah, my sort of first memories are just sort of running alongside the ute with my dad, going to the tip with my dad. That was a big thing. It's always been a big thing in our life. Even now, he's always going to the tip to the, you know, take the household rubbish. I'm always asking if I could come or, you know, or he would say, do you want to come? And I'd feel like I was letting him down if I said no (gasps) because I thought he needed the company.
0: Yeah, the obligations of small children. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, So... You were close with your father? You are close with him?
1: Yeah, I've got, um, I'm really close to both my parents. My parents have been married for maybe 52 years now. Wow. Um, And I'm really close to both of them, yeah.
0: And uh, siblings?
1: I've got a brother who's three years younger.
0: And uh, would you say the two of you are close? Uh, we're pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Big sister, little brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that went well.
1: Um, Oh, just the normal, you know, him chasing me around with a cricket bat, (laughs) me picking on him until I realised that that's not so wise anymore because he's finally got big enough to protect himself, Mm. all that stuff.
0: So you moved from the farm. Did you stay in New South Wales? Uh, We
1: went to Thailand. We went and worked in Thailand, Um, or Dad did. He worked for the World Bank teaching Thai or helping them set up agricultural practices and then after 18 months there my mum brought my brother and I back to Tamworth we bought a house in town and while my dad kept working there and then he started working in Myanmar or Burma at the time and so he worked remotely for I don't know how long it would have been maybe two more years um so he came back to visit us but my mum probably did the lion's share of raising us at that time Mm. Yeah, and we stayed in Tamworth. I went to, my brother went to boarding school when he was 10, and I went when I was 12. Um, So, pretty much just a year apart from each other. So, we were in Tamworth from only from, I was from seven till 12, so just for five years.
0: So, you would say that you moved pretty frequently?
1: Um, Well, yeah, my first five years, and then we moved 18 months, and we moved five years, and I went to boarding school, so you're moving coming yeah. back and forth to Tamworth every holiday. And then they moved to Toms-mania, um, when I was 21. So, yeah, I would say that uh, Sydney's probably been the my home as such, like from 12 to 44. Mm. But, you know, your fa- your home is where your heart is and my parents live here and I've spent a lot of time here and I um, probably have the same connection here to here as I do when I was running around the farm next to my dad's ute and, you know, just kind of having that freedom, the childhood freedom. I think Tasmania has that. Mm. So that's probably the connection here.
0: Have you been to New Zealand?
1: Yeah, we we went for some family holidays. Not a lot. It's expensive to go. but it is. But, um, yeah, I we went a little bit to the South Island.
0: Did you... What did you think? You know, knowing that your parents were from there, did you have any kind of response, any kind of feeling of or even just the thought of should I feel something? Um, you and this idea of heritage.
1: Yeah. Well, uh I started doing my PhD through UTAS in Varesque, and so you unpack a lot of things when you're doing these these sort of projects. And I've realised that my parents are island people. Like they grew up mm. in the South Island, and they lived this sort of. They grew up. They were born in the '40s, so they, you know, they're baby boomers, and they, you know, they sort of treasure um, sort of that. They're not into commercial life like our generation is. Mm. So um, I sort of feel that in Tasmania, it's sort of a similar way of life, like appreciating the slow um appreciating making things like my mother's always making actually she's got a vegetable garden and she makes a relish for the tomatoes and she waits for the apples in April and then she waits for the several oranges in I think it's August and uh, Mm. she's just constantly she's just flat out every sort of vegetable or fruit season flat out trying to make the most of that produce and I think that that was what she was raised with in New Zealand and um I'm not doing that myself, <laughs> but I appreciate it and I, um, I guess it's part of my values. So I mm. think in terms of the New Zealand, I would say it's that kind of, it's sort of very wholesome. Mm.
0: Yes, wholesome. That does seem like a good word. I'm wondering if you can talk about the first time you used a camera, if you can remember. Uh, well, my mother
1: was telling me the other day that, you know, I have a son who's seven and he, she said, you know, what gifts you give them really can shape where they go and what careers they do. And I was thinking, oh, God, that's such a big responsibility. Yeah. I just wanted to buy them a Christmas present. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't want to like, shape their life. Uh, and she said, well, we bought you when you were probably maybe 10 or 12 a darkroom enlarger and, yeah. and uh, now you're a photographer and Ice, and I thought, oh, so I told my brother that mum said that. And he said, well, that might be true but you always love photography and I remember when they bought you this Panasonic red compact camera, like just point and shoot camera, um, and you always, you took it everywhere and I remember my dad always saying, you know, he was always, he doesn't like wasting money. Mm. And he was always saying, don't take a photo of that, you can just buy a postcard of that. Oh, <laughs> Um, and then he'd be teaching me how to take a picture because he uh, he enjoys photography, and um he never really had a camera, but he always sort of understood i guess where the light is et cetera hmm. so um I suppose I had a camera with me a lot, but when I read about photographers who had a camera ever since I was seven or ten, i don't relate to that. I must have always had photography in my blood but I, even when I was in high school in year 10, we had to choose our HSC subjects and I didn't want to do art. I was wanted to do photography and which is kind of different, but the same. And um, I didn't do it in the end because, you know, there was this pressure on having a proper career as not being a photographer, but being like a, Mm. you know, doctor or lawyer or accountant or something. And So I sort of feel as though even then, like when I was 16, I still wasn't doing photography. Like I I did a term of it and I really loved it. But I, And then I went to university um, and I went to do like a Bachelor of Arts, like psychology and fine art theory, so not art school. And they had a photography workshop across the road and I just joined that and I was in there the entire time. And that's when I really got the bug of it. But I still didn't actually do anything with it. And then I got my first job working at this fine art auction house. And Rex Payne, Dupain, Max Payne's son, um, he rented the studio as part of, like they gave him a studio as part of their warehouse area where the auction house was, in return for him photographing their catalogue for the auction house. And I was the receptionist. And he came in one day to work out what to photograph and he offered to show me around his studio. And as soon as I went to a studio, I knew that was what I wanted to do. So I quit my job and moved to Tasmania for the first time. Um, I was probably about 25. but So it took me till 24 or 25 to really pick up a camera properly and pursue it. Mm. So I feel as though while I sort of had cameras and darkroom and think around me, I never probably, I wasn't in the environment that would sort of encourage that.
0: Yeah, it does um, feel like this this thing sort of existing, laying dormant, and, and mm. waiting for. I mean, timing is everything. Mm.
1: Also, I'm a slow. I I'm slow at everything. Like it takes me a while to get to a place, and then once I get there, I'm good to go. i like I I really run with it, but it takes me it takes me a while to kind of understand how things go. Why do you think that is? I have no idea. It's really annoying. don't know. Um,
0: I'm not sure. I'm having um, just a memory that's sort of t- tugging in the back of my brain and it's. Uh, I had a housemate uh, in Brisbane years ago who was studying um, nutrition and sports science and, and he was talking about this process that we all go through when we are uh, coming to the decision that we want to get fitter or make some kind of dietary change. and, it, and just the, that the, the first step, which is the biggest step, is just the, the thinking about it. And often we stay in that space of thinking about it um, for a very long time before any action comes, but it's actually that considering and that noticing of the thought. That is the, the the point, the biggest catalyst. Yeah, I,
1: I do agree that thinking about something or make, the, the time it takes to make the decision is the hardest part and then once you've made a decision everything else is easy. <laughs> I do think that. But in this case it's slightly different because I just don't understand. Like I don't know, maybe I just, you know, I think you don't do things till you're ready hmm. and Maybe there's just lots of other steps that you need to do to get ready. Mm. I'm not
0: sure. I like that, the idea of a photographer or an artist or anyone, just the the getting ready. Yeah. Because so often we're focused on the end part, the product. Yeah. The the looking back and the oh well I achieved and the but then yeah, the getting ready.
1: Well, it can be a whole life. Like in the end, I don't know, who knows? You might be, or I might be, anyone might be, you know, making a feature film or something by the end of it. But in the beginning, you were just like taking some pictures here and there, but had no idea that that's where it's not so much that things just land on your plate, but it's more that I think that you do things and you put building blocks in, but you don't know really where you're going, but there is a a clear path. So uh, to explain that, when I was at um, first year, first time I went to university, I did psychology and fine art theory. Then I worked at an auction house and then I got a job as a newspaper photographer and journalist. And I was thinking to myself, Sarah, you have no idea. like You're just switching left, right and centre because there's no path. And then I became a sort of arts-based photographer and all those things clicked into place because Mm. my portraits are very psychology based I'm using the fine art theory as the sort of foundation for that as well the journalism helps finding the people and getting their stories out and all of those things are vital building blocks for what I'm doing now so you just don't know what the next thing is that the building blocks are for but there is a there is a path yeah
0: there is we just don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's the exciting bit.
0: It is, it is, although sometimes, you know, and I, we, I, we all have these moments where it's just what is the point? What is the point of me? What is the point of this? What is, you know, it, yeah, It sometimes it would be great to have the reassurance that this is going, you're going somewhere, even though you know that you're going somewhere, something is happening. Uh, but to, I can tell you the
1: uh, point. The point is that um, if you, like, I don't know, I've sort of worked this out recently, that if when you leave this earth you've made some sort of contribution and not only to society but that you've made the, well, there's that, to make a contribution to society but also that's quite a big bar to to fulfil so put that to one side and then to make the most of yourself, like to be the best person that you can be and... That each thing you do, you do the best you can, and and make that a contribution, and then I think just great stuff happens from that. Hmm. Like, yeah, I think that's. I think that's the only. My my friend was, um, he's languishing in Sydney, you know, (laughs) with the lockdown and with COVID. He just sort of feels like he's sort of not going anywhere. And I said, you know, the only thing you need to do is make the best of yourself. That's the only requirement. There's like nothing else to be done, uh, whether that's reading or I don't know, starting something or anything. But that's all there's to be done is to make the best of yourself.
0: Mm. I really like that as opposed to making the best of a situation.
1: Yeah, because that's too big. Yeah. There's too much responsibility. And you just don't know how what that's what the situation wants you to do.
0: Mm. Yeah, that that feels really comforting. Making the best of yourself.
1: I watched this um, thing Marta Dusseldop did this thing with the ABC. It was around mental health. I, m- maybe it was during for COVID. I'm not sure. It was recent, and she said that your chapter, your book, your life is like a a book. It's like a novel, and each. You're writing a chapter each time. When you've closed one chapter, you open up a new chapter and you can work out what that chapter wants to be. But your life is just a piece of fiction really and you can take it whichever way. And I thought that was kind of a nice
0: way of looking at it. Yeah, that is really nice. That is really nice. I would really like to talk about, uh, from I guess from both sides, this experience that you and I have shared uh, as a consequence of the work that you're engaging in. Dave had, Dave Carswell had messaged me to ask if I would consider being a subject for the work that you're engaging with. And um, I think that were it not for the fact that it was Dave, I I probably would have said no, or, or this experience that I, I've had with m- meeting all of these different creatives and it, it maybe, maybe that's had the impact as well. But um, the work that you're doing currently is uh, incredibly interesting, this, um, this idea of how we relate to the natural world. Can I ask where, where this desire to investigate that came from?
1: I have noticed that I've been making pictures of people relating to nature for a while, but uh, it wasn't really my intention to do that initially like from the beginning of my arts practice. It's just something that's I've just noticed has evolved That sort of come from within. I guess I'm kind of a, I like things to be real, I like things to have, like to, to really sort of psychologically sort of tap into what's happening, and I found that, photographing people in their homes meant that people, the outsiders could judge, you know, oh, that person lives like that, you know, they can be like this. And I found that that I didn't want to be making sort of a documentary portrayal of someone like that. I wanted to have a more of a psychological portrayal of someone. And I found that in the natural world, people, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's it's obviously something that's about me rather because, you know, but... I found that nature doesn't judge and also it kind of brings out the, the rawness of people, you know, that kind of primal thing. And I found that really interesting that we kind of, I guess, our wild side in a way, but not like being crazy wild, but just just our sort of the human, you know, the kind of the primal. I, I think that that's what nature does. It connects with people in a really real way. And I found that that psychologically is more interesting for me. I did a series called Play from 2003 to 2008 and, no, no, 2008 to 2013. And um, these kids were playing in the bush and they were playing like games of survival. And one of the fathers had committed suicide um, around that time. And I'd photographed them pretty much dealing with their grief while they were in the bush and their parents never came to watch them and they were, had machetes and they were they were 10, sh- cutting down trees, stripping the trees, building houses, lighting fires in the houses, the houses burning down, having to build a new cubby. Like they were kind of just really, they were raw with their grief and they were really strong in their community together. And that's, I didn't really realize, I, I wanted a child at that stage, so I thought, uh, immediately afterwards, that I was photographing them, at, sort of out of my grief for thinking I might not have a child. But, and that that might have been the case because as soon as I had a child, I sort of lost connection with them. It was mm. like they didn't see me as an adult, even though I was completely their parents' age, pretty much, or a bit younger than their parents. Yeah, I I think that a lot of it was that the nature g- gave them this sort of permission to be whoever they wanted to be. They didn't have to be judged by anything. They could just express themselves without any boundaries and I think that's quite
0: interesting. Why do you think that we desire permission? Why do do you think that? I think sometimes we as humans uh, both consciously and unconsciously are, are looking for permission from other people, our parents, institutions, nature. Why? Why do you think we do that?
1: I think it takes a, a pretty strong person not to look for permission from people. Mm. Um, and usually, it's around being comfortable with yourself, I guess, like being completely secure with who you are. But I don't know. A lot of, I mean, a lot of people are like that, but I think most people aren't. I don't know, I guess it's a lot of competing interests of people who kind of need to challenge the advertising industry, for example. It's completely mm. built on trying to make you feel insecure. Mm.
0: Um, I don't know. I was having a conversation with the current artist in residence at QBank, George, and as we were having this conversation he was uh, telling me about a writer who has written about this idea of wildness. Uh, I I, I didn't anticipate for this to come up in our conversation, but I would, if you don't mind, I would just, I'd like to just read for you this first section. Wildness has no goal, no point of liberation that beckons off in the distance, no shape that must be assumed, no outcome that must be desired. Wildness instead disorders desire and desires disorder. Beyond the human, wildness spins narratives of vegetal growth, viral multiplication and dynamic systems of non-human exchange. And I'm just um, wondering what your response to that is, what your feeling about that is. Uh, Well, I have... Just from
1: listening to it for once, I would say my initial response is that when I was living in the city, I was feeling very controlled. You know, you have to stop the traffic lights. You have to do this, you have to do that. And when I moved to Tasmania, I felt, I actually felt the irony that, you know, pe- they, the cities, people go to the cities because they, they want freedom. But actually, there's a lot more freedom outside the city because you can A, be who you want, although you could argue it's the other way. And almost when you're in nature, you probably almost don't need to prove who you are in a way, like to who? The sort of nothing, it doesn't matter, you know, you don't have mm. to sort of change yourself or be be anything. You can just kind of relax into yourself, I'd
0: say. Drop the weight of
1: expectation, identity. Yeah, I think so. I don't know in terms of wildness. I'd say in some of the recent portraits I've made, particularly the two I've made of you, the one lying on the ferns and then the one sitting on the car, I would say there was a sense of wildness there. The one lying on the ferns, you know, you just cut the ferns. You just The gardener had just mm-hmm. cut the ferns and, and so it's violent in a way, like lying on this kind of, or it felt violent at the time because you'd seen this sort of area all cut down and then there was this sort of garden bed or like foundation, of a cottage hut or something that you were lying on, it was almost like a sort of graveyard thing. Mm. And we'd sort of imagined that that was going to be a bit like, it looked a bit like Ophelia in the painting, Ophelia. So I did feel that there was a wildness with that, maybe psychologically. And same with sitting on the car because you've got in the background there's these tracks coming down the hill as though the car's just screeched its way down the hill and then in front there's all this trash because mm. um, it's a graveyard, car graveyard, so it's just like a, so it's like the car is just screech down the hill and then uh all this trash out in front of it. Mm. So it's gonna be personified. And so there's a wildness in that too, which I guess I was probably picking up from you, but also this place, like Queenstown, it's sort of it's a frontier this place. And I'm a tra- I am mean, it's funny because, you know, you're only making pictures about people that you probably really identify with yourself or there's an, e- there's an equality in that. And while I wouldn't really describe myself as having a wildness necessarily, I there probably is something there. So I would say it's a psychological wildness more than anything.
0: That's, uh, that's interesting, this idea of you, you, know, you saying that you w- not feeling that a strong sense of wildness within yourself. But I, I wonder if it's this, I do wonder if the, it's this connection that you have particularly with the natural world, with the wilderness, with the wildness as, a, as an observer and a, and a holder of it.
1: Well, it's funny, I mean, I love photographing. Out of all the places in Tasmania, I'm just going back to the same places. I'm going to Sisters Beach, Rocky Cape, Cooda Rocks, Queenstown. And I'm going back to these places repeatedly and I'm not really, I uh, try to go to the Central Highlands, but I just can't, I just don't understand it. So uh, that will come later, I guess that's a good example of things that you're just not ready to get. Mm. You know, I just don't get it. I know there's something there, but I just don't I'm not, Don't understand it yet. Um, but the East Coast where my parents live, it's so genteel, really, and beautiful, and, and I just never, I go to visit my parents, but I never take pictures on that East Coast. It's just too boring. Whereas on the West Coast, in the Northwest, there is a wildness, and I just love it. I'm so energised and charged by that because there's a freedom to it. Like you... There's no rules. That's right, and it's like it's a bit crazy. Waves are pounding, and the rocks are
0: jagged and harsh, mm. and there's a rawness. Even the, even the the naming of some mm. of these places is that there's a there is a, a aspect of danger and a and yeah it it, it evokes you know, trembling in the wake of these incredibly formidable places and, and aptly named.
1: Yeah, like Cape Grim. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor's Rocks. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're great names, aren't they?
0: I, um, just to go back a little bit, it, I think it's really interesting uh, the way that you were talking about the situation surrounding the the ferns on the... The feeling that I had in those two separate places with the, with the cars and in the it was very striking to me. I felt a, an incredible vulnerability and, and very close access to my femininity, uh, laying on those ferns and being held and held in this way that I, I didn't anticipate to feel so. Comforting isn't the right word. It's, um, I don't know, supported maybe is the word. I felt that I was gifted something. And and to look back on it now to think about all of these, the ferns and, and the way that they were cut down and how violent that action was, really these dead almost dead, dying limbs and this this last sort of gift of experience to be supported by them. I don't know why that experience felt, opened up a connection to f- femininity and in, in total contrast, sitting on top of the car, I felt incredibly powerful. I felt like this was my domain, this was my um I had control over this mechanical beast. Um and and like like i I'd, I'd gone to war with it and I was yeah, I was the champion. Um just such different experiences, both feeling violent in their own ways. I think that there is a, I don't know if violence is inherent in the natural world or if it's something that we project onto it or just the experience,
1: I don't know. I'd say it's inherent if you think about the winds and the animal kingdom. But also lying down on the ferns is quite a feminine Thing, or in many ways or at least it has been depicted like that art. and then sitting on top of a car that the height, the power, like that's quite a masculine thing. So they're probably, they're almost, I don't know, cliches come from somewhere but, um, <laughs> you know,
0: it's probably. Are you exclusively photographing subjects in Tasmania for this work?
1: Well, funnily enough, I was, probably until I met you, photographing people who had lived here for more than half their life and only photographing Tasmanians in Tasmania. But then since meeting you and also a few other things happened, like I sort of analysed what I was interested in a bit better. They call it my situatedness. (laughs) I realised that I'm interested in not the place itself so much as what the place brings. So I'm interested in the intersection really between, you know, that feeling of solitude and the tension between the creative space that you can, that you need, that you need solitude to feel creative and to, to make. But then that dark side where it's quite a scary place that you just, it's quite punishing and it's really hard to be in. So I'm quite interested in that because I mean I think about that a lot myself I, I, I always have and then I've I've always sort of found Tasmania to be this place that's you know people are there's this magical spirit here there's this like amazing sort of sort of I don't know or feeling here with a lot of people and I think that it comes from the isolation like it comes from people being having to rely on their own minds and and not relying on sort of media and external stimulus and when I go to Sydney and talk to my friends I might one day recently I told them what I was doing and they said oh that's so sad I said what's sad about that like that's awesome it's the ultimate it's like the goal of what you should be is to be completely comfortable with yourself and to be creative and that's that's the actual like that's the human goal and that's what you know the meditation is all about is to be completely happy with your own company and that's so hard Mm. and it is in the city people people don't even try like it's just they're out all the time and they're at coffee shops and all this stuff and that's awesome but it's uh that's what's special about a place like this is that on an island at the end of the world really Mm. and the people here like we're in training for it like COVID we've been very lucky with COVID it's only been 66 days we're in lockdown Precise, or it seemed it was for me, but you know, it didn't affect a lot of people because they were used to that life, like that's how a lot of people were anyway. They weren't in apartments,
0: yeah. Well, actually, what was interesting was that the challenge was not the isolation, as you say, but this shift over to a lot of um, uh, technological based of uh, things, you know, throughout the school, schooling system, all of these, the apps on the phones. Um, you know, I think that in the most recent study it was shown that the worst performing state for um, digital accessibility, digital literacy is Tasmania and within Tasmania the worst performing for digital literacy is the West Coast. But that's great, isn't it? It is, but when this <laughs> shift happened, there was a bit of a vulnerability that happened in that the, the, the people here are hardy stock and they are they are, know how to survive, really survive in their aloneness. And then they w- were expected to have an internet connection, to, Use this technology that they haven't needed they haven't needed to use. I mean, it was really it was really challenging for a lot of a lot of folks. The expectation was that um everyone has an internet connection, everyone has a computer, everyone has th- these things and and so yeah, it was there was a lot of people, especially you know mothers that uh, were teaching their children in the way that the school had set out that they wanted them to teach, which is through these these online courses, um, which is not the way that I think the mothers here would have, if it was up to them, taught their children. They would have gone into the garden, gone into the bush. They would have um, done it a lot differently. So it really, that was the difficult part, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Well, ironically, the way they would have done it is a better way, I think. So <laughs> I agree. they should just get, get with the program.
0: I absolutely agree. Yeah, that's interesting. So are you specifically Tasmania, but um, regional regional spaces? Is that?
1: Uh, not necessarily. Just people that I'm drawn to really. Like I couldn't really necessarily write an ad for who I'm looking for because I was asked to do that at the beginning. But anyway. But I'm just interested in people who understand, like, isolation and solitude and contentment within that, self-containment, and it doesn't really matter where they live. I don't think it doesn't really matter where they're from. I just think that their relationship with where they live helps that.
0: Mm. I think that when... We talk about aloneness in relation to being in the natural world. There's. I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, but I'm. I have been experiencing this, um, just observing some things, and there's some bits of information, breadcrumbs coming into view, and. Um, I guess I'm wondering what your thought thoughts are on the idea of going into nature. So, for, for example, the Overland Track, um, this idea of going into the natural world to achieve something um, for the promise of a, a beautiful view that you will capture for a, a few moments or um, bragging rights even, you know, it's not enough to do do the overland track do the overland track in winter I mean oh that's something else um, and I just am struck lately by this this incredible need for activity and, and not not stillness to go into nature to do something conquer something and um,
1: I think people move around a lot to kind of fill up things so I don't have to think and I do this myself I mean I don't necessarily conquer things but I'm you know people's attention spans they get distracted and like, you can dream up things to kind of fill in time so you don't have to actually think or attend to things yeah I think when you go into nature you're not you it's scary the thought of going to the overland track on my own I think I would find that quite uh, a confronting idea I wouldn't really like to do that. But then if I actually did, I'd be, I would kind of question anyone who went into nature and would feel alone. I don't think we feel alone when we're in nature. Like mm. Nature is with us and it communicates with us. It talks to us. We're attuned to it. And the more that attuned, more someone is attuned, the more interesting they are to photograph and I guess that's I'm interested in the, how place and the person connect with each other. And when I take a picture of somebody in nature, um, it's amazing how nature is talking to the picture just as much as the person is. Like they're communicating the same ideas, and they're really reflecting that person. So I don't think when, particularly someone who's attuned goes into nature, they don't actually ever feel alone. Um, but in terms of conquering and things, that's just. People who are distracted and not tuned in.
0: Mm. No, I like that a lot. I think finally, I mean, you when you're taking these photographs, you you you're both part of the experience of what you're photographing and outside of it. And I'm wondering how that feels.
1: Well, you've said a question to me, which I'm going to incorporate in the answer to this because uh, I think it kind of relates. You were talking about like the performative nature of, of of making a photograph and the staging of a photograph. Um, and I guess what I would say is that the majority of photographs would be staged uh, to a certain extent. Only street photography would not be staged when people don't know they're being photographed, but pretty much everything is to a certain extent. At least you're putting someone in a place and then they're, they could be natural from there on, but, you know, but I would say that, you know, it's a collaboration working out how the person wants to be photographed and where they want to be photographed, and then there's a connection between the person, the artist and the subject or sitter. And then it's, I don't know how you felt being photographed. It's hard because there's a camera in front of your face, but or my face, but um, it's like a... It's very much, if if I'm making pictures and my heart, I guess, is not full, then the pictures generally don't work. Like it's sort of, you have to completely put yourself in the other person when you're making the pictures and have the feeling, you have to feel the feeling that you think the other person is feeling or it's kind of like a, a waltz, a close waltz in a way. So yeah, like they, they would be. There is a sort of performance or a performative element, probably, um, potentially both ways. And there is a sense of staging, but then there's also an authenticity and a a real about it. And I would say, I'm sort of playing around with this idea at the moment of making pictures that are documenting someone's affective experience and not their, this is what they look like or this is, you know, how they live. And I'm not sure if it works or not um, because, you know, photographs of people in their own place, like literally in their own home, um, are really revealing because of all the little bits and pieces they gather. But I really like the idea of, what their place says and, and what the landscape talk speaks to the camera, what it's saying to the camera just as much as the person. Yeah. Does that answer the question?
0: Yes. I'm thinking about, I just had a, a memory again in the back of my mind. My father um, is a Reiki master. And he doesn't, uh, not really practicing so much any more, less inf- less frequent. But um, he was, uh, I was having a session with him years and years ago, and I was feeling a certain way. I had, I was feeling a certain way, and he was performing the movements and and i knew in that moment that he was feeling with me and there's something about i mean it's the same it's what you're talking about is that you not just a, is that authenticity of that you you're you're there not just observing and documenting the subject but so it's not just the relationship between the person the subject in place but the relation it's a, it's a triangle and what what you're taking in and and helping them shoulder or helping to feel and and just it's just a beautiful exchange, it really is. Yeah, it's fun
1: because it's almost a challenge as well and I quite like to see what you can reveal and I like interviewing someone after rather than before because then you can kind of, it's good not to know too much before you're making a picture. I mean you need to know something but not too much. And then it's nice to make the interview after to find out, you know, how close you were, really, like how how much the camera did reveal. You know, Walter Benjamin wrote about the optical unconscious and how, um, you know, the camera reveals more than the naked eye. And I think in part it's because it flattens, it makes everything flat. Like the 3D becomes 2D, so... You, you're, it brings things all into the same plane so th- the relationships are more easy. Also, it stops time so mm. you can actually spend time looking at something.
0: Oh, I like that so much. It stops time. Yeah.
1: But then I also think probably more importantly the place or and the person kind of communicate with the camera and they're kind of talking to the camera or the photographer or whatever and so there's sort of these three ways that the camera is able to reveal more
0: than what we can observe mm. and even that that sort of having this photograph having this moment in time that feels like uh, to to be viewing it that feels like an attunement and a and a, a moment of of um deep understanding to to be able to really see that moment
1: yeah and the hard thing with where I'm at at the moment is I've got these interviews and the stories are so wonderful I want to use them but you sometimes things work better visually and sometimes things work better with you know the pictures often work better without the words mm. so it's just kind of that balance of
0: yeah you know. it's very interesting too I had this experience where um you know, you, you listen to the audio and you had sent me the the transcript of the conversation that we had. And, I mean, those two things are completely different. And I, so I, I, I wanted to see how I felt about a conversation that I could both hear and then also read. So I uh, sent a, a small recording to get transcribed. The feeling is totally different. It's completely different. I. I I had never considered that the reading and the hearing would feel, like, worlds apart. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Is there anything that you haven't said uh, or that we haven't spoken about that you feel that you would like to say? No. I think the last
1: point I sort of sneakily introduced things I wanted to say at the same time, (laughs) So (laughs) I'm not sure if there's anything else. I suppose uh, what I would say is in terms of the process of making pictures, when I first started making, when I first started planning my project, I was going to make these interviews and make, make some pictures. And then I thought, oh, I don't want to have text with my pictures, so I won't bother. And then it was after... The lockdown, COVID lockdown last year. And I thought, oh, I'll just, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'll just start interviewing people about their experience being photographed. And then it kind of moved on to themselves. And then that's when I noticed the threads of, that's when I was able to unpack what I was doing. So I guess I would just say that, you know, the encounter, but with the person on a sort of personal level, or intimate level, or with the interviews um, that's where the narrative comes in I guess you know that's where you know while you might not view the picture with the interview or with that story it might be published separately or it might be part of an artist and it might not be part of anything at all but the narrative becomes a really key part of the work um, in the making of the work it, just in terms of who you choose and how it's made and just the sort of philosophy of you know, people's relationship to place and achievement with place. Like all these things just kind of, they come from talking to people and then you sort of build on what you spoke about in the last interview and then you try that out in the next one and it just sort of gets richer and richer. So it's sort of a way of evaluating yourself as you go and I find that's been a really useful process. Just I guess it's a bit of sort of self awareness as you go,
0: and you're you're a part of that narrative. You play a role in that. It's not something that's just that you're observing or you, you you've been given. You're an active participant in the creation of that story.
1: Yeah, that's right. And not only in who you're choosing, but and not what, what questions, but just in. It's funny the number of people who have said or or either the subjects and sitters themselves have said that they felt comfortable with me and happy to tell me things or people, you know, looking on at my project would say that there's a real equality with with me and the people that I'm making pictures about. So there's not a, there's no hierarchy really. It's like the people that I'm wanting to connect with, there's something that I guess I see in myself in those people. And then I'm sort of almost making a self-portrait in a way. It's probably what it is like. Oh, wow. Um, but, yeah, without being so, I don't really like talking about myself so much. So it's not really like that. But essentially that's what it is, which I guess most artworks are. Oh, I
0: really, really like that. And it's it's not just because it's not, yes, self-portrait, um, absolutely. But it's... Um, yeah, taking these pe- pieces from other people that you're relating to. Yeah, that, but there's got to be you're you're affecting each other
1: mm.
0: as as people. You're you know it it would be interesting, possibly a, f- a few years down the road because it's always in hindsight. But and I don't even know how you would fully track it or understand it or. But what, what piece of yourself you have gifted to your subjects, and what piece of themselves that they have gifted to you in turn, because it does feel like this. Here, I have a little bit of mm, this my, hmm. yeah. you know, it's a little strange. Yeah, yeah. So really, um, I mean, this whole this whole process that you are engaging in is. Beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's but it's more than more than beautiful. It's so deeply personal.
1: Yeah. Without. It's nice because it's deeply personal, but it's without being, oh, look, this is all about me type of thing. You know what I mean. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Um, if people, if if um, anyone would like to view your work online or get in touch with you, where might they do that? Uh,
1: I have a website, sarahroads.com, R-H-O-D-E-S. Uh, and I have an Instagram handle, which I'm not very good at using Instagram so much because I have a love-hate relationship with it. Mm. More hate than love. Oh, don't we all. Uh, which is sarahroads.lumina. Oh, and I'm part of the... Lumina Collective, the, of eight female identifying photographers in Australia, or one lives in the UK at the moment.
0: Um, yeah, we're working on projects together. Fantastic. So I, I, and I, I know that you're following the whole the whole process down, but do you have a kind of um... Like an end date mm. in mine? I do. You do. Do you? <laughs> I do. Oh my gosh! Uh, well, my PhD finishes in June
1: twenty twenty two. Of course, of course. So uh, it there will be a, it will be finished by then. I'm, wow! I've only just sort of it's only all just come together now. So i will working hard to sort of visualize where where I'm. I'm. Sort of like I'm sort of starting. I keep restarting because I keep kind of understanding what I'm doing a bit more deeply. But I feel like this, where I'm at now is where I'm
0: going. So I've got a year, which is actually not that long. No, really. it's not. It it truly isn't. Um, okay. I can't wait to see the quote-unquote finished product. Yeah. I... Same. And have to write 20,000 words. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. It's a bit much. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, just... Um, it's been so wonderful to meet you and have this experience with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Emily. And um, I think that what you're doing here is fantastic and
1: it's very brave to your journey and it's uh, a great inspiration.
0: Oh, you're very kind.
1: It's not really kind, it's just true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you for being a part of it. <laughs> My pleasure. This was local. This project would not be possible without the incredible community of folks who make time to chat. Nor would it be possible without the tremendous support of the West Coast community. If this episode offered you something good, please consider rating the show via Apple Podcasts. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is supported by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Quartz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund. For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.